This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Welcome everyone and welcome to Jane Tara. We all know that uh, Jane works at Better Eating. She's giggling in the background. And she is on Stories Behind the Story because Jane has written a fiction book. So, Jane, Tara, welcome to Better Eating. Jane, (laughs) hang on, hang on. I'm going to reintroduce you. Jane, author Tara. (laughs) Gee, thanks, Cheryl. (laughs) It's very strange being on this side of the mic, but great. Yeah. Yeah. You're in the chair. (laughs) I am. I am. And I get to see you do your magic because I hear it, you know, and I hear the the recordings and everything, but, you know, to sort of watch you, watch you do it it, um, from, from this perspective is fantastic. Okay. Well, I'm excited because, I mean, you know, I mean, we've known each other for a long time, but there's a lot that I don't know about you, particularly when it comes to writing and your writing career. So we're going to um, get to the bottom of that. Jane has has published (laughs) over 100 children's books. So I didn't know that. I knew you'd written children's books, but I didn't Mm. know you'd written that many. Several plays and five novels. She's a daily meditator. I was going to say mediator because that's what she's in the office, but she actually meditates as well. I I mediate because I meditate. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. She's a sucker for a rescue mutt. She's got a dog and most of all, a front row cheerleader for her two sons. She spent 13 years wandering the world and lived in five countries, but is now happily at home in Sydney and at Better Reading where she works. Um, she's, uh, with us today to talk about her new novel and it's called Tilda is Visible. Well, what's Tilda is Visible about, Jane? Mm. So it's about a woman in her fifties who wakes up one morning and her little finger and ear are missing or invisible. Uh, and she goes to the doctor, she's diagnosed with invisibility and it's a condition that is uh, quite common in women over 50. So now she's faced with the prospect of completely disappearing as different parts of her disappear and she's, you know, in the fight of her life to try and work out a way to not completely disappear. So she goes to a support group full of invisible women. She sees a therapist. Uh, She tries all sorts of things, but really she needs to face her past and that past includes a problematic divorce and relationship, but also childhood trauma. And as she faces those, she learns how to see herself again. And along the way, there's a love interest, Patrick, who is blind and he Mm. sees her more clearly than anyone ever has before. Mm. So, yeah, that's Tilda. (laughs) Yeah. Do you know, it got me thinking, and I think we might have even talked about this over the years, and I'm older than you, but when I think around my 50th birthday, a friend of mine said to me, welcome to the world of being invisible 
right? And he mm. said, it was male, not female, and he said to me that as he's gotten older, he's felt more invisible. Now, do you know, that was a, a you know, sometimes it was like a light bulb moment. I'd never thought about it really and no one had ever mm. said that to me. But I don't feel invisible. I really don't. Mm -mm. And I still, years later, still don't feel invisible. But I know many women do. Talk to me about mm. that and why. Mm -mm. I think, I genuinely think that by our age, you know, we can be visible again because we see ourselves more clearly. But I think there's a journey that you take to that. So I think it starts in your 40s with perimenopause. Women are juggling more than they ever have before. They're juggling it all. They're stressed out. They've got their careers, their kids, and quite often they're feeling invisible at home. Um, often, you know, it might be relationship problems or not even, just life. And that impacts them hormonally as well and the way that they actually see themselves. I think by the time you get through to the other side of menopause, the idea is to be in a space where you're really comfortable with yourself and there's a freedom in getting older. But that journey from sort of mid 40s into your early 50s can be very, very tough for women. Mm, mm. Yeah, no, I've not had that experience and maybe because I haven't had children. That could be part of it. And interestingly, just the other day, uh, a friend of mine here and I were talking about age and ageing and he said to me, you appear so comfortable where you are right, because I've mm. got a milestone birthday coming up this year. Mm -hmm. I don't like it, but I am comfortable with it because I have no choice really, right? We have no choice. Mm. And what I always think is I just want to be the best that I can at that mm. age. But the funny thing was we talked about what if we could, right, and that's the magic of fiction, what age would we go back to? And mine was 40. His was 30. Mm. Hmm. I loved my I'm, 40s. I hated them. Like yeah. looking back, I was I was in hell in my 40s. Why? I, and I should, well, because I was in a really unhealthy relationship, actually. Mm. I was giving myself constantly and not getting anything back to multiple people in a toxic environment. Mm. So I look back at that and my 40s is just wipe the slate of it. And it's a pity because, you know, it is a great age for women. Um, I'm loving my 50s, you know, but I think that you, you know, you have practices in place. You're very proactive at remaining healthy. And, you know, you had that experience last year where you ended up in hospital, but because you were fit and healthy and had looked after yourself to that point, you were okay and came out the other end of that. Mm. So I think there's ways to age. And so for me, it's a gift. We all know, you know, we've lost people along the way, but also let's embrace it. You know, as we get older, there are great gifts to be had in getting, you know, in your fifties and sixties as women, mm. there's freedom there. Mm. I don't know if we spoke about this, but you know, the first couple of days of hospital when it was really grim, and I thought it was the end. Do you know I lent into that in a way mm. that, oh, yeah, sure, I was sad. Of course I was. I was shocked. I was sad. I was all those things. But I remember thinking, gosh, I've had a good life. Mm. You know, gosh, I've been lucky. I've had really good opportunities. I've had great people around me. So the reason why I'm bringing that up is in terms of invisibility, 
is is it about attitude as well? Is it how you embrace where you're at? Is it's one hundred percent about that. It's one hundred percent. That's the core of my book. So basically, Tilda has got to this age fifty two where she starts to disappear, and she's never addressed the trauma from her childhood and childhood trauma can really leave imprints in your brain and, and in your, in your programs and the way that you view the world and see yourself, you know, you can view the world as a a dangerous place or that happiness is impossible. And all of these, um, you know, programs that are installed in your, your brain early on and they shape your experience as an adult. And so it is entirely possible to change a lot of these core programs. You know, it's neuroplasticity. And so are you bringing I, in woo-woo? Woo-woo. <laughs> this is science. <laughs> I'm bringing in woo-woo, Cheryl. Hold on, hold on. Here we go. <laughs> Look, neuroplasticity is science. Meditation, the two of those things can go together and they can actually change the way that you perceive yourself and perceive the world around you. And as you say, it is the way you view things, you know, so Tilda needs. Yeah. And do you know too, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I was just going to add, you know, I don't meditate, you know that, and I don't, I'm not a woo-woo person. But you swim. I swim. And Mm. do you know, I know we've spoken in the last couple of weeks, but I don't know if I've told you this. I've upped my swimming from half an hour to an hour here, mm. life-changing. Mm. And, mm. you know, it was an attitude. It was like, why am I rushing all the time? Hmm. Why was why am I jumping in the pool, loving it, in la-la land, and then putting myself on the, the timer, oh, yes, and 30 minutes? Why 30 minutes? So mm-hmm. I thought, you know what, I've got the time here. I don't feel the same pressures that I do in Sydney. I'm going an hour, life-changing. Hmm. I think you should maintain it because it is a form of mindfulness, it is. you know, and the Buddha, the Buddha said everyone should meditate an hour a day unless you're extremely busy and then you should meditate for two. Wow. There you go. So that taking okay. that time out for yourself actually gives you more time. Mm. You become more effective. Mm. So it's fiction, but a lot mm. of it for me mm. is, you know, as a lot of fiction is, is coming from a place that you know and uh, yes. um, and coming from your own experience. But there is, we've talked about this, that it's it's part fiction and it's part, what would be the word that you would use? Self-help. Would, self-help. I was going to say woo-woo again, but I yeah. decided not to. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that is an unusual mix for fiction, isn't it? Tell me how it is that you decided that this is what you're going to write because I wanted to read it and it wasn't out there because I'm on that journey myself and have been since I was a teenager and continue today. And I, I love reading upbeat, positive stories, but also stories um, about women that are inspiring. And so I read a lot of nonfiction for pleasure in my own time and things that sort of motivate me to keep going in my own life and over life's hurdles. But there wasn't really the merging of, you know, entertaining sort of contemporary fiction mixed with a female journey. And I sort of, I started exploring it, but then I kept going in and the deeper I went, the more of myself that was going into that story. It was almost like I was purging 
you know, my 40s onto the page and um, and now it's gone. <laughs> yeah. You, you parked it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you know it was a genre when you were writing? Did you know that that's this is where I want it to sit in the market? Uh, a little, yes. Yeah, because, mm. because I feel like it hasn't been done. And see, you know, I'm... I mean, obviously I'm involved in the better reading community, but there's also another community that I'm involved in out there. And it's this meditation um, community that, you know, we go on retreats and we do Zooms and hold ourselves accountable for each other, accountable for meditating and stuff. And, you know, literally in the hundreds of thousands around the world. And so I know that there are people on this journey who are, if they want to be entertained or if they want to read a book, would actually enjoy reading something like this because I wanted to read something like this and I couldn't find anything like it. Mm. So having worked at Better Reading and what, you've been with me now, what, five years? Five years, yeah, Yeah. coming up to, yeah. Do you think that that process for you in what you've learned at Better Reading helped you get this book published or even helped you write it? Like how did you Mm. approach it? Because you had a career of writing before you came Mm. to us, but Mm. was this a totally different experience? It was. um, I think I was able to merge like all of the experience that I've had from different types of publication because I've done everything from, you know, romance, trade paperback overseas and educational publishing and, you know, kids, indie publishing. I've done it all. I was able to, at work, just sit back and know that I had this story that kind of sat in a slightly unusual genre. Yeah. And because we work with all the publishers, I was able to look and go, well, where could it go and be seen for the story it is, not lost somewhere. Uh, And it's a hard one because we have such great publishers in this country, such great publishers. It could have gone to anyone. But I really wanted Kelly Doust um, because she does contemporary women's fiction and self-help and that's mm. her specialty and this is the merging of both of those. Mm. Because, you know, as you and I know, it's so hard. A lot of first people that are interested in being published, finding a publisher is difficult because it's so important, as you say, to get, there are so many publishing houses and they're all great, but mm. it doesn't mean it belongs in all of them. Books are so personal that it doesn't mean it belongs in the biggest and the best or mm. it belongs in the hands of somebody that loves that genre, that story. Exactly. And they're going to be on your side and they're going to market it because a lot of people, I mean, it, you know, we all know this, our listeners know this, our readers know this. Reading is so subjective. Yes, that's right. And working here, I was able to get it into her hands, but that doesn't mean that they're going to publish it if that's it's right. not yeah. the story that that person wants to read, that publisher wants to read as well. Well, and also, Jane, you're not going to yeah. say this, but I will. They're not going to publish it if it's not good. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, nobody's yeah. doing you a favor here. <laughs> you just managed to put it in the right hands, you know, <laughs> yes. and where you wanted it to be, of course, with a phone. Yeah. 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 And that's, um, that's, I'm so grateful for that. 
Talk to me about the process because at some point you stopped writing, didn't you, and then started mm. writing. Mm. And when you started writing this book, how was it for you? Because, you you know, you virtually were working full time. I think you are working mm. four days a week to start with, but either way, you're mm. working, you've got two kids. What? Mm. How did you carve the time out to write? That's mm. what I think is always challenging. I often look at people, particularly mothers that are writing, mm. but even, you know, people that are working full time, I, I don't know how they find, they go from that brain to that brain. Mm. So I'm finding it difficult at the moment to do anything yeah. else, but I stopped writing and then I was writing, well, I stopped writing for myself, as I call it, and then I was writing to feed my kids. So a lot of textbooks for school libraries. So this was the first time to go back to writing something for me. I had bits and pieces of it actually already written over the years because I had the seed of this idea a decade ago. So I had bits and pieces of it. It was in the second lockdown. Well, actually in the first lockdown, I did a bit too, but it was in the second lockdown that I really put it all together and finished it off because I felt really safe and secure, unlike a lot of people, because we were able to pivot and we were working from Mm -hmm. home, Mm -hmm. you know, so I knew that I had my salary coming in. We weren't going out and meeting people and doing, um, I wasn't going and meeting friends for dinner. So there was all that other free time. So it was just me and the boys, I'd work and then I wrote. Mm -hmm. And that kind of kept me sane as well. And I literally, I was digging in so deep. And as you know, I lost someone I love very deeply just before we went into the second lockdown. So I was grieving as well. So I was really putting that onto the page and sort of digging in deep. And it got to the point where I thought, wow, I'm nearly finished this first draft. And I thought, okay, by the time I walk out of lockdown, I'm going to have this first draft done. And that's what I did. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And at what point did you start showing it to people? Because I think A year later. That's right. Because what was I I didn't know that, but I'm assuming that. Because you've got the advantage of being in the industry Mm. and you've got Mm. your better reading community. That's a huge Mm. advantage, right? But it's also a huge disadvantage. Because what about if nobody liked it? I was crapping myself about that. (laughs) That's putting yourself out there. I sat on that for a year. Yeah. I sat on it for a year and did bits and pieces in it and everything. And then 
I, you know, had one industry reader who, you know, I knew that that they wouldn't be interested in it, but could at least give me a little bit of advice. And also it was Benny actually. Um, And she, I knew that she meditated and was a little bit on the woo-woo leaning side. So I thought she wouldn't find it too out there. But then, then I kind of felt a little like, and she loved it. And I, I had a little more courage to sort of step out. You and I was actually talk- one person, don't you? Yes. Yeah. So then I, I did and I sent it to Kelly and, um, and yeah. you know, here yeah. I am. Okay. Mm. So I want you to take me back to how you came to writing, like go right back. Cause I don't know. Talk to me about where you mm. grew up, what your influences were, who were you reading? So family legend has it that I was reading by the age of three. I'm not sure if that's true, but I always had my nose in a book and mm. um, from a like solo from a very young age, it was an escape for me. Uh, so I, I used to read, I mean, really a lot of Enid Blyton, but by the time I was probably pre-teen, so maybe uh, 10, 11, 12, I was reading a lot of bonk busters, um, you know, the Jilly Coopers and the Lace. And I know that's um, a genre you like. Yeah. Well, I like it because it it really lifted me out of an environment at home that was quite volatile. And I got lifted into these worlds with all of these glamorous women who were strong and powerful and out there and, you know, doing their thing. And I loved them. I absolutely loved those bonk busters. But also there was a, a series that was... Um, you know, a very famous Australian convict series called The Exiles. I think I read them about three times. I would read over and over the same books as well. But no one told me that I could be a writer, even though from a young age I was reading and I was also writing. So every time something happened in my life, I would process it on the page. I was also writing romance books that I've got in a suitcase at home. And it always got to the point where, you know, it got to the point where the the male and female, something was about to happen, but I didn't know what would happen next. So suddenly the, the <laughs> exercise book had blank pages. It was just like, that's the end of the story. I don't know where they go from here, yeah, but right. yeah, but I sort of explored they go, it but to you that don't point. Know where yeah. They go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so I've got all of those, but I was also involved in local theatre and and so ended up thinking, okay, well, I'll study drama. I got the first bus out of Ballina when I was, I was still 17 when I graduated high school, got on the bus, came to Sydney, went to the ensemble studios and did a, a acting degree for three years. But during that time, I loved it. I loved um, the theatre and the people and the storytelling, but I was still writing. I was doing stand-up poetry and comedy oh, wow. poetry and things at pubs and I was writing plays and then I got on a, a, plan, a plane and went to Japan uh, not Why long after Japan? I graduated. I, I just, I heard that you could work as an English teacher or a hostess and make some money and I thought I would do that and go um, for six months and make some money, backpack around Asia a bit and go to New York. That was my plan. And as you know, I lived in Japan for five years. I ended up marrying into a Japanese family. My kids are part Japanese. So Japan changed my life. Mm. Um, and when I was there, I was directing theatre. And I was 
acting and doing TV commercials and all and sorts of stuff. And how hard was that? Like that's got to be because, you know, we all know Japan's a monoculture. So culturally mm. how hard was it for you to slip into that and really to to get a gig in the arts? That I mean, that's hard everywhere, but it must have been yes. particularly hard in Japan. It was, I kind of blagged my way into my first one and then after that it all snowballed, but it was actually an English-speaking theatre company. Right. And uh, so I I did some Japanese theatre and that was quite interesting and amazing, amazing. Yeah. But my work, my um, directing was uh, in an English-speaking company. Right. Mm. Yeah. And so five years in Japan? Yes. And then yeah. what did you do? I moved to Vienna. Mm-hmm. And after that, I moved to London. Mm-hmm. And after Why that, Vienna? I moved, well, because Chicky, my ex-husband, uh, has family in Vienna and connections right. to Vienna, so we we went there for a while, and um, and then London and New York. But we kept returning to Vienna as well. I love the place. But during this time, I was writing more. I was writing theatre. Mm-hmm. and had um, some plays published and performed. I, I wrote some children's books that were published in um, in Korea, um, mm-hmm. just really random, you know, stuff happening to me. Um, but then my grandmother died and uh, I wrote, as I always did, I wrote about it. I wrote an article about the, the importance of grandparents and the grief of losing a grandparent who you're close to. And I just, in, in those days, I was living in London, and in those days you would pop it in a manila envelope and send it off to an editor, you know, and then weeks later you'd get a rejection. That's the way it worked for me. So you were submitting work early on? Yes, yeah, I started submitting competitions for things, freelancing, mm. um, all sorts of stuff. But I got a call from the editor and she said, I love your piece, New Woman magazine. I love your piece. I'd love to publish it. And I went, oh, great. And she said, and you'll get 250 pounds or whatever. It was a fortune to me in those days. And I was just shocked that they were going to pay me. I was happy to have it published, you know. A month later, I went into the local newsagents, picked up my magazine with my article in it. That was fabulous. And, you know, and and that was enough. But then a couple of weeks later, the editor phoned me again, landlines in those days. And she said, she said, we've had an incredible response to your article. I'd like your address. I want to send you the letters that have come in. And so I, I had this sack of like literally, you know, some three dozen letters that I still have today. I get very emotional when I think of them because Mm. people from all over the UK were writing in to me to tell me about their grandparents and how much their grandparents meant to them. And I, you know, every couple of years I read them and cry and it it really, it was the first time that, okay, I got paid for my work, but I also realised that, you know, you can make an impact through your words, you know, and um, yeah. And so that was it for me. That was the real turning point and I just kind of maintained that road, it hasn't always been easy and it's taken me off a few different directions along the way, but just continued to write. Mm. And how, tell me the story of how you then decided you needed a job and how you came to better reading. (laughs) I know how you got the job, but talk to me about how you kind of got there. Yes. So I was a single mum Mm. And the freelance life had been uh, very good to me, actually. And I'd made a 
decent living and I was still at every school assembly for my kids. Mm. But I was tired and my boys were older. They were living their own lives. And I was sick of sitting up until 2 a.m. meeting Mm. deadlines. And uh, so I thought, no, okay, I think it's time to get out of the house. (laughs) And so, you know, the universe listened to me, Cheryl, and, Mm. um, and, you know, (laughs) brought me your way and um you know and of course you have your own um memory of of, yeah can I can I share my memory because we all know that memory is so unreliable and it was really just um through one of those online which is where I've gotten most of the people that work for us but it was one of those online job seek or something yeah yeah and you came in because you had to submit a writing sample Mm. And I had a friend of mine check the writing and she said, wow, she's a good writer. So we brought you in and I, it's an open plan office and you sat on the desk and you were so direct. I, you said to me, I said, uh, oh, tell me about yourself. And you said, well, I'm a single mother, right? I'm a single mother and one of my children has started to starting to play drums and I feel as though I need to get out of the house. <laughs> um, and you said single mothers and you can correct me if this is not true, they can work a lot in a short period of time. Mm. You said that, Mm. didn't you? Mm. And And it's true. And that Mm. was it. I gave you the job because Mm. you convinced me. Like it wasn't even an interview. You just sat there and spoke at me. And then I was, <laughs> I, I probably didn't have time, Cheryl. I had to go and pick up the kids and I had to, you know. But was I think Mer- that, that is my have- approach too. Yeah. Did we ha- was Meredith in the office? Were there other people? She was. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it's an open yeah. plan. Meredith is the book by Big W. And when yeah. you left, we both kind of turned to each other and went, well, that's it. That's Oh, I said, yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm offering her the job. Because <laughs> I liked the honesty. I liked how you were candid. And mm. this is just the way it is. And I love the drum bit. Now, you must have told me that because how else would I have known that you're something? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And he did. And look, I mean, I love listening to my kids play music. I think, yeah, I never need to leave the house when they're playing music. But I think it was that thing of, okay, I was just done. I was yeah. done with trying to juggle it all at home. I wanted to carve out more of a, a, a world and a life for me, which has been great because I've sort of moved into more empty nesting they're back now at the moment, but you know, empty nesting. Mm. And what do you, what does a single mother do after the kids are, are adults and have moved onto their own lives? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that whole thing that the whole notion of mothers working too often they're on you know part time deals where they're working, you know, they're paid yes. part time but working really full time. I think that's very mm. common. But mm. also because they're really deadline driven, you know, they're like pick up, drop off, yes. this, that, and putting a meal on the table, doing that. They do. I, my experience with working mums is very much that they can work really hard, head down, bum up, get that work done. Yeah. I And, yeah, you have to or you, you just mm. hit a wall. <laughs> You end up in a corner somewhere hitting your head with a wooden spoon. It's just, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. you just got to maintain it. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, you know, I, I, you know, I'm in San Francisco, as you know, and we're talking over Zoom. But I brought up, I might have been talking about you, but anyway, I can't remember. And we were talking, we were at dinner the other night. The idea of part-time doesn't really exist here. There's no... Mm. 
there's no two days. Well, this was pre-COVID, right? No two days, no three days. Now it's two or three days in the office. But that whole idea. So when mothers go back, they have to either go back full time or not at all. Well, because they need that pressure. for the um the health insurance, probably. Yeah, over and there. there's not mm. really flexible. Well, there weren't. I think that mm. that's changing now, definitely. Mm. But well, in Australia, I think, we've had it for a while. Yeah, I think. Even a, I don't a, think it's totally fair. Sorry, I think a good I think a good employer and a good work situation for a single mum is like a gift, Mm. you know, and on the theme of visibility, like I came into that interview right at the tail end of like quite a a big journey of, you know, healing over a past relationship and just, you know, rebuilding my life and all of that. And I always tell people, you saw me, you know, Mm. because it's a lot of, you know, a lot of women come in and, you know, they're not going to get a job at that age if there's someone who's younger and yet the woman who can only work part-time hours because she's a single mom will probably get as much done in those part-time hours. <laughs> I, I agree with that. And I've never shied away from hiring parents, as you know, or yes. mothers yeah. or older people, you know, I mean, mm. <laughs> we're considered, I mean, I don't think yeah. it's as, as, as big as it was. But I remember many, many years ago, I was working on the shop floor. I'd have been in my 20s. I was working at Dimex and I hired this woman in her 50s, Sheila. And she was, well, she first said to me, you're never going to hire me because I'm 50. And she said, but I will be the hardest worker you'll ever meet. Mm. And she was that. And I hired her. Do you think ageism has gone a little bit? Or do you think it's just because we're in a bubble? No, look, I think it still exists. Mm. Um, we, But I I think um, it's not meant to exist. So people tiptoe mm. around it a little bit. You know, mm. there is more of a conversation. But we are also in a bubble because I think we're in an industry where there are a lot of older women who make decisions about books and in yeah. publishing it and great yeah. editors and great, Managing you know, directors. Yeah, yes, yeah. 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 So there's a lot of very visible women in this yeah. industry, which is fantastic yeah. and really great for the younger women who are coming up as well. Mm. I think they're good role models as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Um, so I just want to go back to Tilda is Visible. Talk to me a little bit about the books out, but you told me that uh, rights have been sold. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Mm, they have, yeah. yes. yes. And is so, it simultaneous release or does that is that no, staggered? Right. No, so it will be released in the US and in Italy early next year. And that's huge, yeah. Jane. That's wonderful. Congratulations. Yeah. And how do yeah. you feel about that? Uh, amazing. I've just finished the US edit, just, um, you know, making some sort of changes, minor changes for that. And if I think about it all too much, it can be really big. You know how these things go. You've just got to maintain the course. You've still got to get up and chop wood, carry water. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, that's that's what I'm, I'm doing every day. I'm looking at my weeks. They're pretty busy at the moment. And I'm going, okay, so what do I need to do today? and get that done. What do I need to do the next day? And uh, occasionally on the weekend, I'll have a glass of Prosecco and take a a breath and go, oh my God, wow, that's big. It is big. It is big. Jane Tara, thank you so much. Congratulations. Uh, Tilda is Visible is out now. Thanks, Cheryl.
If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.